I wrote words to the Clapton version of Cocaine, uh, and I did. I played all the guitar parts, multi-tracking it. A friend of mine put down the drum track, but I, then I put down the bass and four guitars and um, the vocals and harmony um, and rewrote the words to reflect the medicinal use of cocaine, not the recreational use of cocaine. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Rhino Pasty podcast. It's a huge shout out to Marina Medical for enabling the April Indonesia Rhinoplasty podcast. Thank you for supporting us. This day, I have a man who started his career when I was born, who I have the honor of speaking to. So he has decades and decades of experience, and that's Prof. Mark Constantin. Prof. Mark, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Glad to be so, asked. Ah, that's, no, it's great to have you. So this gets listened to all around the world. Tell us, where in America are you based? I'm in the northeast of America. I'm in, in uh, about an hour north of Boston in New Hampshire, um, in very southern part of New Hampshire, though. I can walk to the Massachusetts border from my house. But it's, I'm, I practiced in a town of about, oh, it's now about seventy-eight or 80,000 people, but the catchment area is maybe a quarter of a million uh, but I live outside it in a farming town called Hollis, which is mostly residences and farms. Um, maybe now it's probably 8,500 people. It was maybe 6,000 when I moved here uh, 40 years ago. And, it's and a lovely what, area, though. What is your little your, your your story behind how you ended up being facial plastic surgeon, especially rhinoplast? Where did it all start? I finished my plastic and reconstructive residency in 1978, and I had seen maybe, I don't know, not even five rhinoplasties, and I'd done a few, um, and I, I didn't understand the operation at all. None of it, what I read, made any sense to me, and so I thought, well, I've got three months between moving from Virginia, where I was uh, about 1,500 miles south of here, up to New Hampshire to start in private practice. I, when I got to the New Hampshire, this state had uh, 1.3 million people. There were three plastic surgeons all at Dartmouth, and they were, and that's about two hours north of me. So I was the only other plastic surgeon in the state, and I came here because it was an unserved area and it was rural, semi-rural. And I thought, okay, I'll raise my family here and I'll just, I'll, I'll disappear into obscurity and that's fine. I'll be the local guy. And in that interval between moving up here and taking my um, written uh, plastic surgery boards, I flew out to see Jack Sheen operate because he was sort of coming along. Nobody knew him as, uh, as famous as he was. His first book had not come out yet. In fact, he gave me a, manus a, a mimeographed copy of it to read. Uh, he was very nervous about it, whether it would even be any good. But I'd heard of him, and I'd watched one of his videos, uh, and I thought, well, this makes sense, so I'll go out and watch him. And it was a real epiphany for me. Um, it was the, it was something clicked. It was like the experience Eric Clapton talks about when he first heard Robert Johnson. All of a sudden, he knew there was something here that was really unusual. 
And I never expected to do a lot of rhinoplasty because this is a general plastic surgery sort of area. And New England is a conservative area. There wasn't much interested in cosmetic surgery. But Sheen was so organized and so efficient and so technically good that I thought, well, whatever it is, I'll adapt his techniques to, to hand surgery or whatever I need to do. And um, so I came back and I started to do that. And then I got more and more interested in rhinoplasty. And the first, first few rhinoplasties I did, I was completely, totally lost. I, do, I take off what I thought was the bump. And I thought, well, okay, nothing's going to change because the books say you draw a straight line from the radix to the point of the tip, take off everything anterior to that, and nothing changes except the height of the bridge. And then I turn back to the patient and everything looked different. The nose looked shorter. The calumellar nostril relationship looked different. Yeah. The bony vault looked wider. The middle vault looked narrower. And I thought, I have no idea what I just did. So I thought, I'm never going to learn to do this operation like this. So I, I developed a system that I talk about in my book. I had a chapter on how to teach yourself rhinoplasty, where I would do a step and take a picture and do another step and take a picture. And then I'd end up with 30 photographs, slides, and put in a slide sheet in sequence and label each one, okay, before dorsal resection, after dorsal resection, after modification of the tip cartilages, after shortening, and so on. This is my specimen. These are the tip grafts I put in. Um, and then I would get sequential photographs postoperatively and see what things changed and how the nose evolved as it healed. Mm -hmm. And if it didn't work out right, or if it did work out right, I'd go back to my notes and my pictures and see what was good. Because even though I'd watched Dr. Sheen and I went back probably a dozen times after that to watch him, still, I'm back here on the other side of the mm -hmm. country by myself operating with nobody to tell me what to do. So little by little, I got better. And then about six years in practice, I had some ideas for a paper. So I wrote them up and sent them into the journal. Nobody knew who I was, but the results were good enough that they published it. Wow. And then I wrote again, and then I wrote again, and about 10 years into practice, maybe a little less, someone asked me to teach an instructional course. Yeah. And little by little, it built after that. <clears throat> and those were the days before any internet, of course, no websites. Yeah. So I got referrals from other patients. I got them locally. I got them from, uh, from physicians who had seen my papers and my presentations and and knew that I had an interest in this. So it grew from there. And over, oh, when I was in practice 43 years, it really wasn't until the last 10 years that rhinoplasty was almost the only thing I did. Partly that was out of choice. Um, but it takes a long time to build that kind of practice. But that was okay. I, I liked the variety of what I did. And I, was, I felt like I served the community. Sure. And and the resilience to be able to have 43 years of operating like you did. What did you do to to kind of, you need to have other things, I don't know, sports or something else to get out of not just, just doing rhinoplasty the whole time. How did you manage to keep balance in your life? The two things that always interested me were staying fit, which I did. I swam every day pretty much for decades, um, and music. I had played, uh, I started playing guitar in the late, uh, early 60s um, and when I was finishing high school. 
And then I got to college and I played, I was a member of the college octet at Columbia University. Um, and uh, your older uh, audience members may remember a, a doo-wop group called Sha Na Na that sang at Woodstock. Yeah. They were formed right out of that nucleus of people at a college's octet. I went to medical school and they went to Woodstock. Yeah. Um, but But I sang with another guy. We started writing things. We were performing... Beatles stuff and Simon and Garfunkel and Rolling Stones and Birds and the and the acoustic rock stuff we could do, uh, and I continued that even when I um, when I got up here I bought an electric guitar which is a totally different instrument started playing that so now I've probably got ten or eleven guitars and uh, I've continued to play uh, so what I I just retired from clinical practice at the end of last year. So now I want to, my goal in the next 18 months is to finish a lot of unfinished songs and um, then record them. Uh, I have a friend of mine in Austin, Texas, who has a recording studio, and he can bring in any other musicians I want. So drummer, bass player, whatever. So I'll do the, assume the guitar parts and the vocals. Um, I already did that once. I wrote, I wrote words to the Clapton version of Cocaine, yeah. uh, and I did. I played all the guitar parts, multi-tracking it. A friend of mine put down the drum track, but I, then I put down the bass and four guitars and um, the vocals and harmony, um, and rewrote the words to reflect the medicinal use of cocaine, not the recreational use of cocaine. <laughs> so the refrain was, instead of she don't lie, she don't lie, it was she stay dry, she stay dry, she stay dry, cocaine. <laughs> if you hate that red, you better do what I said, cocaine, and so on. Uh, it was fun. And uh, I played it actually at the Rhinoplasty Society meeting maybe 20 years ago. But it was like, it went over the heads. If people hadn't, didn't play an instrument and didn't record, they didn't realize one musician in the audience loved it, but most of the people there, I thought, okay, let's let's go to dinner. They they had no idea how much effort it took to put that recording together, but it was fun. Oh, well. and, you know, it takes it takes weeks of practice to be able to pull off a Clapton solo at the right speed uh, and play it. I, I didn't want to record anything I couldn't play live, so I eventually got to that point. Oh, well, I'm gonna I'll buy your album when it comes up for sure. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Okay. The other thing I think uh, I, I've always wanted to come and visit, but for various reasons, I haven't been able to get there. But I understand that your wife is very involved in the practice as well. Yes. We've been together. She came to my office um, 35 years ago now, uh, just working part time. I had developed some computer software that was really like virtual reality before there was anything like virtual reality because I. I saw when, and from my photographs that rhinoplasty was very interactive. You do something, the nose changes. You make a decision then and do something else and the nose changes. And because it's closed, you're looking at the surface and making the decisions from the surface. So I thought, have to, I, I used to see these photographs of, of automobiles that would turn on the screen so they'd show you the new model from every different angle. I thought if I can do that with a nose on the screen, and then give surgeons the ability to see the anatomy or the surface, mm -hmm. and then turn the head and look from frontal, lateral, mm -hmm. oblique, and inferior view, and make decisions 
based on what they see and go through the operation and try variations and then show them what it would look like when the nose healed. Uh, that would be very instructive. So we, I don't know, I, I did with a medical illustrator. These were all done by hand, one by one with a medical illustrator. Some 6,000 images, and we culled them down to six to 3,000. At that point, the the average personal computer had eight megabytes of memory. And you the XT um, had 12 megabytes, which is what you needed to run this program. So when it was finished, there were three different primary noses and one secondary nose that was a super tip deformity. You one One was a male, one was female, thin skin, thick skin, low radix, high radix, adequate projection, inadequate projection, all the different things that I thought. This was between 1984 and 87 I did this with a computer programmer. So you could, there were something like 180 different pathways you could try. You could do, in, do a dorsal resection, one of four dorsal resections. If you didn't like that, you'd back up, try another one. Then you could do five different kinds of tip cartilage resections and then shorten the nose or not shorten it and then do osteotomies, ailer wedge resections of different types, radix, spreader, tip grafts, or not do them. If you were lost, you could get a hint or you could get a complete didactic explanation. And then when you were done with these pathways, you could pull up the anatomy or you could just look at the surface. And when you were done, the computer would reconstruct for you what the nose would look like when it was healed. And it, it, uh, it was interesting. You know, I, I used to take walks with her and we'd go to Maine in the winter and I'd, and, and she'd say to me, you know, you're way ahead of your time. Yeah. That was the problem we had because yeah. I'd show this at meetings and people would say, oh, uh, doctors don't like to experiment. The residents would try it. The, fa the attendings wouldn't because they didn't want to make a mistake. The idea of yeah. doing something on a computer and being wrong was too frightening. So wow. um, it was a very good exercise for me. And I presented that at our national meeting and there were maybe 30 people in the room. Next to me, there were 500 people watching a facelift lecture. Exactly 10 years later, the opening ceremonies at the meeting were dedicated to virtual reality, which is what this was, but there was no name for it at the time. And even then, what had been done was not what I had done. All they were able to do was simulate a Z-plasty. That was the state of the art then. So um, it was a good exercise for me. It was a wonderful teaching exercise but it was um, sort of a forgotten thing. And she helped me with that, test it, and then market it. And um, then she became the office manager. And we married uh, 29 years ago. Um, and uh, so she she travels with me. She was in the operating room when we did, a, she did a lot of the photographs from my textbook, um, the intraoperative photographs. So we've been we've been a unit for a long time. Right. Um, and uh, often the residents would come over and ask her questions like they're going to, they're going to get the real story from her, <laughs> but it, it's fun. It's, it's, we both, we've had a lot, a very interesting career. Wow. And I've been fortunate to go to a lot of places, do mission trips and operate overseas in a number of countries and, and do a lot of teaching. So it's been, it's been fun. It's really been fun. Not that your energy is palpable. So, okay. 
Now, if you were to think what's going to be happening in the future of medical technology within possibly the rhinoplasty world in the next, say, two or three decades, what do you think? Where's, where's it going to go? Oh, um, probably not the right one to ask. I think, I think it's still possible. What I did with the computer simulation is still relevant, but the, soft, the software is old and the program uh, is old. So someone could do that because computer-based uh, imaging and computer-based teaching now is an established thing. Um, I think being able to, um, to grow uh, cartilage, um, autogenous cartilage, from the patients, so the graft depleted patient, the patient with a with a septal collapse, um, or who has no available septal cartilage could be spared rib, which is still for me not a reliable donor site, or calvarial bone. Um, ear cartilage is fine, but you can't use ear cartilage for the dorsum except in some circumstances. I can use it for anything else, but it's not as good as septum. So, if, if it's possible to grow septum, so patients who needed it, who weren't primaries, could have that done, that, that, would, be, that would be a big, a big advance. And I think that the problem people have with rhinoplasty is not that it's so technically strange uh, or so technically demanding or the margin of error is so narrow um, that that's what challenges them. Because the margin of error is just as narrow or, or more in microsurgery. Um, so I, you know, and in a lot of endoscopic surgery. So having limited access um, and good, high technical demands are not what make rhinoplasty difficult. What makes rhinoplasty difficult is people don't, they don't understand the medium because you're working under a soft tissue cover that is more or less fixed. It's not like a facelift where you tighten the skin or even a nasal reconstruction where you can make the forehead flap reduce it to the volume of the skeleton that you want. Here, you, you're working with skin volume that will take on some shapes, but not all. It will contract a little bit, but much more in the upper third. So you really have to be able to assess what the soft tissue is going to do mm -hmm. and then work to make a framework that gives a great function and great proportionate um, projecting nose that fits the patient's aesthetic. That's mm. where the challenge is. Yeah. So that to me is endlessly fascinating because as I, as I began to master these techniques, then I, I was able to be more accurate in customizing a result. You know, if a patient says they want to keep a little height to the bridge or they want an angular tip or they want a round tip, if you have no idea how to do that, what's the point of even making those setting those goals with the patient. Yeah. You have to have control over, over the final result. And um, so you can, the fun of rhinoplasty is being able not only to master the techniques and try to understand the phenomenology, but to keep pushing the goalpost back farther and farther technically till you can create what the patient has asked you for. Uh, and and that, that, I think, is, is where people still struggle. Yeah. It's not it's not the technical problems yeah. that, that are too challenging. It's so, the concept. Um two of the, the, the legacies of many things you, you kind of have not towards the end of your career leaving behind is the one is this 
is all to do with endonasal rhinoplasty and the other one is like really with psychological surgery which i i refer to almost every time i give a talk around that and i'd love to explore that a little bit more with you because i, I think it's okay. actually tragic that there's this kind of perceived difference between an open and an endonasal like we shouldn't this is this is this is we all within the same family but um i'd love to hear from your side in terms of like being so heavily involved like Holger and Obel Jan and Norman and these guys are endonasal work. Um, how mm-hmm. you feel about endonasal rhinoplasty? Well, over the years, people have asked me, well, have you ever done an open rhinoplasty? And I say no. And it's like they don't, they don't understand why I'm not willing to be modern. Um, and based on what I just told you about the soft tissue cover being fixed. Um, I need that feedback of the intact skin to tell me what I'm going to do. Um, I can't, because I have the soft tissue cover in its resting skin tension, I can limit my incisions um, and I get the feedback of what the surface is going to look like because it, it doesn't matter what you do to the skeleton if the skin t- can't take on that shape. So if you've exceeded, if every time a surgeon does a rhinoplasty and ends up with a tip that's more blunt than it was or ends up with a super tip deformity, he or she has exceeded what the soft tissues are able to do. They can't follow the shape that the surgeon has. And that's implicit in open rhinoplasty. Um, if you get the skeleton right, the soft tissue will follow, which isn't true. You only, if the soft tissue can follow, will it follow. Um, There are two fundamental precepts that we've been taught about rhinoplasty that aren't true. One is that the skin has an infinite ability to contract to the skeletal shape. As I said, that's that's the basis of open rhinoplasty. You make a great skeleton, the shape will be good. Doesn't work out like that. If that were true, I would never be doing secondaries on patients that had had open rhinoplasty. I'd only be doing them on patients who had closed rhinoplasty. Secondly, the idea is that the, the teaching is that if you change one nasal area, nothing else is going to change. Uh, and that's also not true. The, the easiest example being changing the height of the bridge. You get changes nasal length, it changes the nostril columellar, um, relationship, it changes bony vault width, it changes middle vault width, it changes the apparent size of the lower nose. So all those things uh, are important information for the surgeon. So the ability, to, to me, the unimpeachable advantage of endonasal rhinoplasty is the ability to see the skin surface, to know when I have adequate projection, when I have filled out the tip, to know that I have the optimal proportion that the bridge is straight, if that's what I'm aiming for, that I have adequate projection, that I have symmetry, um, that I have balance, that the radix is in the right position, that the middle vault feels stable and won't collapse on me. Um, all All those bits of information are available to me if I don't touch the skin sleeve. So, um, I, I need that information to get the result I want. That's why to me, um, there's no better way to do it. Plus, in secondary rhinoplasty, it is a huge advantage yeah. because you can limit your incisions. 
some years ago, I was at a meeting and a very prominent surgeon had spoken ahead of me and the moderator said, tell me, what's your algorithm for an ischemic calumella? So he went through his algorithm. He takes out sutures, um, maybe nitropaste first, then he takes out sutures, then he does something to cover the exposed cartilage grafts, and then he tries to repair it and over a few days, and if he can, he puts a composite graft in. And I'm sitting there thinking, I can't believe what I'm hearing. Yeah. So I got up and I said, I want you to know, I don't have an algorithm for an ischemic calumella. This is a cosmetic operation. What are we doing here? When we do so much to a nose that we're starting to lose soft tissue, mm -hmm. and instead of saying, why am I losing soft tissue? We develop a mechanism for fixing it. Yeah. We have to back up. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, I, I had never in my career lost soft tissue er, ever anywhere in a rhinoplasty. Oh. And uh, it's because I, I can be very sparing of the incisions, watch the circulation. The more, more operations someone's had, the more important that's true. Yeah. You know, I've been able to operate on patients who've had as many as 15 prior surgeries and be successful. I, I would never be able to do that if I did it open. Yeah. Patients who've had flat tips, I can expand where the prior surgeons have failed because they've been trying to get good tip projection. And when they did, they couldn't get the columellar incision closed. So to me, um, that was the only way I knew how to solve those problems. Yeah. Inspiring. Great to hear that. Right? Um, okay. This, the, the one thing I really want to get into my, my teeth into is psychological surgery. I know it's, okay. it's, I mean, you just recently published another book about it, but you know, give us the, the, the important points around it, because I think okay. I remember correctly Fazel telling me a few years ago that five years to learn how to operate, five years to learn how not to operate, and five years to learn who not to operate. So after 43 years, you yeah. know who not to operate. Pretty well, but I would say I still missed one or two patients a year. Because we want to help people. And I recognize these are going to be difficult patients. They're demanding or they're depressed or they're um, uh, grandiose or they've had a lot of bad experiences and they're terrified. So I, I'd say to my staff, it's like we have an oncology practice. You know, these patients need a lot of handholding. And many times I could get these patients through the surgery, uh, but there were always a couple um, that where the surgery was successful, but the patient didn't like it. The patient was angry. Um, and those were the, those were the tricky ones. Uh, I just published a paper in the December PRS that's got all the data in it. So I'm not going to rehash all of that. What I think is that uh, there's a connection. The, the, the patients who are the most difficult to please, the, the quote body dysmorphic patients, in plastic surgery, body dysmorphic disorder is not the way it's defined in the mental health literature, where the first criterion is an imaginary deformity. We can take, we don't operate on patients with imaginary deformities. Our BDD patients are the people who come in with real problems. Mm -hmm. We do a successful operation that, that satisfies their goals, but they're unhappy. They're mad at themselves, they're mad at us. They can be potentially very difficult patients. And um, what I was able to show in that December PRS paper was that there is a high correlation between children who have adverse childhood experiences, 
bad things that happened to them in childhood. It can be just emotional abuse. It can be growing up in poverty. It can be being neglected. Sexual abuse, of course. Drug abuse, alcoholism in the family, divorce, suicide, uh, violence against the mother, and so on. Um, any of those things creates in the child a feeling of shame. My parents got divorced, but it's my fault. My parents hit me or criticized me or neglected me, but I wasn't really a very good child. And that common final denominator of shame can manifest as body shame. That's the most common type of shame. Shame comes from childhood abuse. The most common type of shame that comes from childhood abuse is body shame. That's in the mental health literature. And when I found that paper, it was a huge epiphany to me because I thought, wow. okay, here's the link. The minute a child thinks or a person thinks, the reason I feel defective is because of the way I look. They will come to see us. But what they're looking for is self-worth in the operation. It has nothing to do with the deformity. Um, and it's never possible to give them self-worth. So that's why these patients are persistently unhappy. Um, now, in order to, to um, recognize them, you have to think of the way children develop. When children are born, only their brain stems are working, so it's very rudimentary. By the way, my, my book on childhood trauma is now open source, uh, open access. Brilliant. So people can find it at uh, Taylor and Francis and read it without paying. Um, it just came out that way. As children develop beyond the after birth, their midbrains start getting programmed based on the experiences they have, good or bad. Um, Parents need to teach their children that they have self-worth that isn't more or less than anyone else's, that they have value that doesn't have to be earned and can't be taken away. Mm. They have to teach them how to contain themselves, how not to be too sensitive to criticism, how to live in moderation, um, how to care for themselves. That's what makes functional adults. Mm. If people don't learn those things from their parents because the parents aren't able to teach them or aren't functional themselves. Um, they, the, as they develop, people do, um, they go to the extremes. They either become, feel completely worth less than other people. Mm -hmm. These are the patients who can't tell you what they want when they come in the operating, mm -hmm. when they come to the office. I don't know, doctor, what do you think? Yeah. Um, they don't follow instructions. They need to be reminded to go for their lab work. Uh, they're very passive and dependent and often depressed patients who've had multiple prior surgeries and weren't happy. Or they patients go to the other extreme, which is being grandiose. Yeah. These are the people for whom the rules don't apply. They try to dictate the operation to you in very unrealistically precise terms. They ignore all the appointments. They ignore the post-operative care. They want to be seen on weekends because they're so important. Mm -hmm. um, they, uh, they want discounts because they're so important. You know, so when you're trying to understand these people, you need to look for those, those flags. I have, a I have a table in this paper um, that lists all the characteristics of the patients in our group of 218 that were most likely to request revisions. If it had, it, it's not only adverse childhood appearances, it's the sensation of body shame. 
Now, body shame is not body dissatisfaction. Our best patients have body dissatisfaction. They have a sense of self-worth. They just don't like a feature. Hmm. Um, it, it can be breast size. It can be how the body has changed after childbirth. It can be the shape of the nose or the ears or aging changes. But they don't. these changes don't de- devalue the person in his or her own mind. Hmm. Those are our best patients because the problem, the fair seeing is the problem we see, yeah. and you fix it successfully, yeah. and they go away happy. The impossible patients are the ones with body shame because they're, these are the people who feel that, that what they want, unconsciously want from the operation is to feel valuable, mm. to feel worthwhile, to not feel um, worthless mm. or defective. And you can't do that with surgery. So these are the people who always want a revision. Um, they're often depressed. They're often perfectionistic. Um, they've often had multiple prior operations, but never been happy in, in a lot of different body areas. Um, often require a lot of different, a lot of pain medication. Mm. Um, and um, uh, the, the chances of them wanting a revision is four times higher than the patients who are just body dissatisfied and not body shamed. Wow. So you have to think to kind of read between the lines as you're meeting these people. And, um, and, and that's how you can decide if you can make this patient happy. That's, that's, it's not, can I fix the problem? Is it, can I make this patient happy? And there's, there's separate questions for the surgeon. I, I kind of feel that I need to reflect on all these things you've said the last half an hour. So it feels like I've had a five-course meal. Because each little <laughs> thing is something that I want to digest. It's amazing. Let me make one other point. Yes. Um, BDD, as it in, defined in the mental health literature, starts, number one, with imaginary deformity. That's not our patients. And so I think, based on this work, uh, linking childhood trauma to the characteristics of body dysmorphic patients. I think BDD, the definition of it as it is in the DSM-5 is too narrow. I think it has nothing to do with the presence or absence of a deformity. A minor def- patient can come to you with a minor deformity and have it fixed and be very grateful or a major deformity and have it fixed and be completely unhappy. Mm-hmm. It's not the deformity. It's the meaning of the deformity to the patient. And now I'm seeing other reports in the mental health literature linking body shame to body dysmorphic disorder, childhood trauma to body shame. So I have, I have tied it all together and I've tied it together in a plastic surgery practice. So that's coming at it from a different direction. But I'm working with some other people now and I'm working uh, uh, corresponding with a young PhD in uh, Australia who has written about this and she's completely on board with my ideas. I was very excited to see her work linking childhood trauma and body dysmorphic disorder. So it's, it's now beginning to percolate out in the mental health literature. And I hope all, as we do redefine it, um, it will make it much easier for surgeons, for patients to understand their own motivations, which is partly why I wrote the book. It's for patients as well as providers and for surgeons to be able to realize which patients they can help and for people who care for these BDD patients to treat them better. So, yeah, to the listeners out there, I'm going to actually call a quit on this because there's so much to mull over. I think 
in the life that we live, this busy life, we just want to get stuff done. Great, we've heard the podcast, let's carry on. This is crucial. This is crucial. You need to spend some time mulling over this. I think, I mean, I, I follow you on Instagram and I, I love the posts there. And, and I, get the, get hold of this book. Um, think it through because it's such a responsible thing that we're doing by doing rhinoplasty. I mean, it doesn't help if you're technically able to do it, if you're doing it on the wrong person, etc. Sure. That's right. Yeah. Plastic surgery is brain surgery. I just... I'm just about to release a documentary that I made on a patient with confirmed body dysmorphic disorder who was a patient of mine some years ago. And he wrote me and he said, I'd like to make a film of my life. And it ties together everything I've been talking about. So I think that that also will be very happy. And I think very interesting. And it's the first time this man cured himself. And it's the first time I think anybody's been able to record the experience of someone who was inside body dysmorphic disorder as it happened and he who can describe the experience of how it felt. Yeah, well, we, uh, we look forward to seeing that. Well, if we get those links, we'll send it through on all our social media platforms as well. Um, sure, I'll, I'll send you the link to my open source book. Thanks. So, Prof. Mark, from, from my side personally, myself, but also to the listeners, I mean, we've got guys around the world, 70 countries listening to this podcast. Thank you so much for these amazing pearls of wisdom. It's been like this feast of, of a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, and I, I wish you all the best in, in your semi-retirement. I mean, you're busy with all these other things. It's, it's wonderful. It's an inspiration to all of us. So thank you so much for taking time out today. You're welcome. Pleasure, Cam. Pleasure to be asked. Appreciate being able to talk to you.